You ready? Let's do it. Let's go. Good morning. Welcome back to the pod. We got a special, special, special guest today with us, Claude, Claudio, Claudio, Claudio Gambin. Welcome. Yes, Thank you. Excited to be here. I know Claudio from um, almost, I want to say, a previous life. Is when we used to do these uh, car rallies. Yeah. And when I first met you, you and a friend were in. Um, Don't go there. You guys. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are dressed like Miami Vice, <laughs> and you had dildos on your car. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I remember thinking, who the hell is this guy? This guy's all over the place. And then we talked. I was like, this guy is number one, so normal, so smart, so educated, so good at what he does, so well spoken. And most importantly, he decided to take that moment and live his best life. And mm-hmm. I thought that was the most genuine, like awesome thing about it. Thanks. That's uh, that is my mission in life. Like, if anyone asks, like Claudia, what are you, what are you doing? And I'm trying to create authentic memories, and I want to live multiple lives in this one lifetime. Because most of the people that do these rallies, you know, they are almost. Um, they're one way and then they almost front to be another way. You were so unapologetically you, which is what I love. There was something so genuine about kind of, hey, I'm here to have fun and I'm going to have as much fun as humanly possible and I don't care. Well, there, I have at that time I had two kids, hmm. right? <clears throat> no, sh- no shit. I had one kid. I had one daughter at the time. And like I had like 50 hours to get the most out of that 50 <laughs> hours. Right. And like, what better way to get the most out of 50 hours than doing it in a Ferrari wrapped in hot pink with baby blue dildos <laughs> going 130 miles an hour and they're flying the off the car with other <laughs> amazing supercar owners, you know, like, cause like the, the, literally the best part, I have like two top, like I got top three memories of that trip was one, um, we would be at a stoplight and we would run out of our car and put dildos on other people's cars <laughs> and without them noticing. So then they'd be rolling down the, like like somebody was rolling down a Rolls Royce with a huge dildo <laughs> off the back and they had no idea for like a hundred miles. Like That's just pure comedy. Yeah. Two was uh, just people's reaction. Like it's not only like a sick Ferrari, but then like it's a hot pink sick Ferrari with a bunch of dildos sticking out of it. Like just people would just be like, what in the world? Like wh- what's wrong with you? You're... You're a child, right? And then three, just the authentic friendships that come from things like that because I truly believe there's no better uh, way to get somebody get to know somebody than uh, being in extreme situations with mm. them, right? Like the, the truth comes out, the raw person comes out. So we were in extreme situations, you know, uh, going from one city to the next as fast as humanly possible, although, you know, it's not a race. <laughs> not a race. <laughs> it's not a race. <laughs> Uh, you get there and you immediately bond, right? Because you have an authentic connection over one thing. And we had an authentic connection over cool cars. You can't fake that. And I also remember you had the gold AK champagne gun. Yes. <laughs> we did have a gold champagne gun, but we o- we did not spray people. No. Only uh, iguanas. Some people did. Some people got in the way of the iguana <laughs> shooting. Um I'm actually still not allowed back to that hotel. Really? Yeah. They've banned you for they life. They have banned me <laughs> for life from the Waldorf Astoria in Key West. <laughs> and they know who I am. And I'm actually incredibly proud because I went there with my wife <laughs> and our kids not too long ago. And they're like, you can't come here. Seriously? Yeah. They remembered? Well, 
I'm not wise enough to use an alias. <laughs> and when they put me in the system, like under Claudio Cambin, like I got banned. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm not allowed. Like, they literally have a database and they're saying, this guy's not allowed. <laughs> so funny story, right? We go on this trip and we have fun and we, you know, kill these iguanas and we spray people with champagne. Not really kill. Not really kill. But you know, the, the, the iguanas had the most time, the best time. Because yeah, they had, course. you know, really nice champagne. And they got drunk. And they got drunk. Um... Six months later, I go back to this property um, with a, a couple, like my wife and a couple of our friends, and they let us in for the day. But they literally remembered, like, hey, do you guys remember when there's a couple of guys here shooting iguanas with champagne? Huh. They're like, oh, yeah, those guys were awesome. Like, they had no idea it was me, <laughs> but it was so funny watching, like, someone else's third-party perspective <laughs> on, like, how much of an idiot we were. Yes, we did have gold-plated champagne guns. <laughs> That's awesome. So you flew up from Orlando. Yes. And um, why don't you tell the audience, just so we have a little context of what we're going to get into today, what it is that you actually do. Yeah. Uh, So first and foremost, we're going to get into a lot of fun today. We're going to have some fun, right? Because nothing happens without fun. But I come from the financial services space. You know, I, um, I spent 10 years as a financial advisor with a big broker dealer. Did very, very well there and uh, quickly learned that I love helping entrepreneurs. I love helping business owners really strategize, get creative, find opportunities to both protect and scale. Uh, I am a venture capitalist. I have um, stakes in over 15 different companies and help operate, manage strategy and scale these companies. But my biggest and probably the, the company I spend the most amount of time in is our consulting firm called GFG Solutions. And this consulting firm consults with uh, business owners on strategy for asset protection, risk management plans, tax mitigation strategies, helping them create tax diversification strategies. We help them with growing into their vision, creating alignment between their their funds, their money, their balance sheet, and the vision of the company to really help them scale their organization to whatever they want to scale to, whatever their vision is to it. Like if they want to build it and sell it, how do we scale to that? If they want to build it and give it to their kids, they want to build it and pass it on to the employees. Like what is the goal? We help our clients create alignment between their balance sheet and that vision and then execute. So what do you think is your kind of target demographic? Who are you really working with and who do you maybe want to work with? Yeah, so the the qualitative of that, right? The person is a growth-oriented individual. Like, I want to work with people that care about growing. If you are uh, just happy where you are and you don't want to grow, like, I'm probably we probably don't have a lot in common. Um, but if you are looking at growing, not just like financial growth, like if you're looking at growing as a human, we're gonna get along. So that's the qualitative. The quantitative is generally speaking, businesses that are doing five million of gross revenue or more, and I and you know, we always attain the metrics for a company and we're looking for companies that have a healthy profit margin too. Like if you've got 25, 30, 35% profit margin, then we have enough fat there to really create impact. And we're slowly scaling that, but we really build into becoming an all in in-house solution for clients because as business owners, you yourself being an entrepreneur, you know, you're wearing 16 hats throughout the day. And if we can take two of those three hats off of you, it allows for you to have a little bit more margin in your time to reinvest back into the things that are really the difference makers in your business. Because most of the time, 
thinking about taxes is not going to be a difference maker in helping you grow and scale your business. So if we can build that, then you don't have to worry about it. How does that differ from having a, um, like a good CPA? Yeah. So a good CPA is the person who's going to file the paperwork, right? And I'm not dogging CPAs that are incredibly crucial, but most of them, they're not built to think and plan. They're built to do, right? So they're going to get your numbers. Most CPAs relationship goes like this. The year's over sometime around middle of January, beginning of February, they're going to call you and say, Hey, send me your numbers. They're going to take about two months to tell you, Hey, this is how much money you owe. And it's due April 15th. There's very little planning. There's very little strategy. There's very little like, Hey, what can I do to reduce my tax liability? And there's a new breed of CPAs coming around that I've noticed that are focused more on the planning side, Mm. but the tax conversation starts in September. Because when you annualize your margin and revenue and profit, and you know probably where you will finish the year at, you can then start planning on things that make a difference in your net bottom line. And if these strategies are not implemented by December 31st, it's too late. Mm. January 1st, you've missed the boat, right? Like, And the things that you can take advantage of after December 31st are generally reactive, cookie-cutter type of things. If you want to get ahead of the curve and you really want to make an impact, you've got to do it before the year's over. And the reason you should be wanting to make an impact in your tax liability is to give you more margin so that you can reinvest back into yourself, right? Hire more people, buy more market share, get more inventory, whatever that looks like for you. It's not just to have more money. It's how do we take those dollars and redeploy them? And the the thing about taxes is if you don't do it, there's no going back. You can't be like, oh, man, I made a mistake in 2017. I'm going to go back and get some of that money. Yes, you can go amend your taxes, but there's tremendous risk in that. So you've got to be proactive. And unfortunately, that's where entrepreneurs really miss the boat, is they are so busy being in their business, working inside their business, working on their business, that they're not thinking about all these other ancillary things, which I like to call you know, number 12 on your list of top 10 things to do. Hmm. So let's put you a little bit out of your comfort zone then because you said you typically deal with businesses 5 million and up. And although there are people that are listening that can relate that they have successful businesses or growing businesses, there are probably as in any demographic, a majority of them are thinking, how do I get to 5 million? Yeah. What's your advice or how do you see the plan is to even get to that place where they can hire someone like you and work someone like you because they have to do the hard work first in order to even have that opportunity? It's a great question. You know, and I think through uh, my portfolio of companies, like my portcos, I have businesses in the portfolio that are not even scratching at a million, right? We're breaking through 300 to 500,000. And that's a question I look to answer in every single one of those industries. But it really comes down to a pretty simple formula, right? And the first piece to this is intentionality. You've got to identify and you've got to be intentional on who you are serving. That's the first piece. Where too many young entrepreneurs, early stage businesses get in trouble is they try to serve everybody. And when you try to serve everybody, you end up serving nobody Hmm. correctly, right? So you've got to identify and you've got to be intentional about who you are serving. And once you figure out that, the next step is figuring out how you are serving them. Right, because in this in the age of AI, where you can get unbelievable amounts of data, the human experience will excel. 
Mm. Right? So who are you serving and how are you serving them? And if you figured out those two pieces of the puzzle, then you can scale that effectively. Because if you figure out who you are serving, you can identify where they are. You can identify where they live, who they are, what, what, what makes them tick, what makes them buy. Like what really makes them come in and buy the cup of coffee? But that's the most difficult part about starting a business, right? Is that you're starting, you've put in money, you're trying to figure out how to get money back out. And someone in this side, maybe that may not be your target demographic, says, I want to buy from you. And then someone on the other side says, I want to buy from you too. And if you're trying to start out, how do you say no to business? That is the hardest part by far. But life and business is a zero sum game. Mm. By saying yes to something, you're automatically saying no to something else. Explain that. Let's just say today, you said yes to me being on your podcast, which means you automatically said no to somebody else potentially being on your podcast today. Hmm. So if you say yes to the wrong customer, you are not leaving yourself open and available to say yes to the right customer, which in theory, you are saying no to that customer. And it's easy for me to say, right, sitting at this side of the table, being at the business levels that we are. But I learned this lesson in 2013. And in that lesson, uh, my business coach at the time, which helped me figure this out, his name's Ben Newman, just absolutely brilliant guy. He was like, Claudio, who, who do you enjoy working with the most? Like, who are you really like maximizing value? Not like who's driving the most amount of profit, but where do you find the most amount of joy, right? And, I, and he said, like, list me your top 15 clients on the joy meter. And I listed it. And he said, what do those clients have in common? And 12 of the 15 were business owners, right? So he goes, those are your people. Those are the people you communicate well with. Those are the people who you identify with. And he goes, if you really want to hit your targets, you've got to figure out a way to get more of those in your book. And I said, well, how, how do you do that? He goes, you've got to give yourself margin to say yes to them. And I'm like, well, easy for you to say, right? You're not having to pay bills and mortgage that I have and whatever. Like the general excuse that I think a lot of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. people and a lot of people make. And he goes, let me explain something to you. You aren't somebody that's going to fail, which means you are going to be the kind of person that figures it out. And if you start saying no to everybody, what's going to happen in your day? I'm like, I have nothing to do. Exactly. And with all that time, you don't think you can go figure out how to find a couple more of those people? So that would be the advice I give a lot of entrepreneurs today is if you identify who you serve and how you serve them, and you start saying no to the people that do not fit that circle, it gives you time to do two things. Serve your people better, right? You can deliver a much better client experience because you have more time. And two, you can go figure out how to get more of the right clients. So if you take that model and you start saying no because you want to open yourself up to the type of clients and business that you think you could provide more value for, that you feel like would be more beneficial to you. If that's the goal, sometimes in our life and sometimes in business, our goals don't align with the results. How long do you go down a road before you're like, you know what, I thought this was a way to do it, but I think I'll have to pivot again. How long do you give that? What do you think the key is to knowing when to pivot? 
first and foremost, let's not take this conversation and make it like a black and white thing mm-hmm. where you automatically like pivot and go, I'm not saying yes to anybody else unless you are this, 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 and this, right? Like even today in our business, there are parameters. There's like, ideally is a $5 million company, but if we meet someone doing 3 million, but the dude's scaling at a really mm-hmm. rapid rate, like, okay, like I, I'll take that on because I see the growth. Similarly, if I meet someone that's making 8 million, but kind of a jerk, I'm like, I'm not going to work with you. You don't align with our core values. So it's not a black and white thing. Like you've got to figure out how to keep your doors open, first and foremost. And as you test, right, you are going to try several different things. And and that's the beauty of being a business owner and entrepreneur. And I think that's like the pure magic <laughs> of it is like we get to create shit out of nothing, mm. right? Like one day I woke up, I had this idea and now all of a sudden it exists and people are employed by it, right? And same goes with strategy. I remember, uh, I don't remember when this happened, but I remember at one point in our business, I decided I was going to change completely how we were going to do business. Like the front end acquisition model, I was like, I'm no longer doing it that way. It's creating too much stress and anxiety. I'm pivoting it to this. And I did like a black and white switch and we almost went out of business. Mm. And at that time, and I'm just, I, don't mind, I don't mind being transparent here, but at that time, our running um, cost was roughly like 120000 a month. And I had $752,000 in our operating account. And in a matter of four months, we had like 20. <laughs> and at the, you know, just for what it's worth, our sales cycle is about 120 days, right? So from, from the time I meet somebody to the time we get compensated at that time is 120 days. Today, mm. it's like almost 200 days. Wow. And there's a specific reason for that, and I'm happy to get into it. But so that meant that, like, I had the, the amount of time it took for me to turn to ship. Like, so from the moment I made a change to this new model, so the moment I figured out, holy crap, we are hemorrhaging money, this is not working, to then turning the ship back around was like a seven-month turn. And we almost went out of business. And I'm so thankful for that. What do you think it was the driving force be- behind actually figuring it out? Because that's ultimate pressure. Paying the walls attention. feels like they're closing in, yeah. right? And uh, it's that oh shit moment. How do you figure that out? You just have to pay attention, right? You've got to have unwavering faith in your ability to get out of massive, deep potholes, and you've got to pay attention to what's happening. A lot of business owners uh, don't pay enough attention to their metrics, and a lot of business owners don't have data points. They don't have metrics. I track absolutely everything inside of our business to the point to where it drives my staff insane, Hmm. right? But those data points allow for me to... just tells me like where our leading and lagging indicators are inside of our business. And if you don't have data points, you're steering a ship without a compass. Hell, you don't even have a rudder, <laughs> you know? So like, and, and you've got to be able to pay attention to what's happening to those data points, not just the results. Because in any action, right, there's a reason. So like you, you put in the effort, which creates a leading indicator. The leading indicator creates something right? Creates an, an, a movement, which then creates the result, which is your lagging indicator. Where most people spend all their times is in their P&Ls. P&Ls are lagging indicators. They will not tell you what is happening. They are going to tell you what has happened. Mm. That's not enough data. What created the P&L? Activity. Front-end activity somewhere. And if you can't figure out a way to track that front-end activity, for us, I know exactly how to track that which is very unique and customized to my specific businesses, right? One of our businesses is a, is a restaurant chain. We sell eggs. 
we know how many eggs we sell and we know how many people walk through the door, right? And we got to fix those numbers to create margin. Like we know what those lagging indicators, and then we take it one step further and go, well, who is that person? And how do we drive more of that person? Exactly what we're talking about the, to, from, to, from 1 million to 5 million. It's all data behind the scenes and you've got to pay attention to it. Otherwise you are just in a wish, you're in a hope, you're in a dream without materialization. So then maybe I can run a quick scenario by you. Let's do it. And it's kind of close to home because it's indicative of my business. Um, we won't get exact into it because, you know, internet. But we'll, we'll keep it close. We have a business that we sell LED lights. That's been my business for, I don't know, 10, 11 years. It did very well prior to COVID. We got hammered by COVID. Because we sell to a lot of government, we sell to education, and these are the things that kind of pretty much shut down, especially education. We were doing a lot of schools, and during COVID, schools had other things that were priority than, hey, I'm going to install new lights, of course. They need to figure out how to use technology to teach via Zoom and all of this. Trying to teach entire populace people to do something completely different takes a long time. Right. So that crushed my business. With the new election cycle, we thought, great, not overly happy, but I hear infrastructure, I hear green energy, we hear all these things. And for us, being the LED side of the business, we're excited because now they're investing money in things that we sell. Right. We have to see it up. I don't know where the money went because it is not in our industry at all. So we, although we recovered slightly, we have not recovered to the point that we were. Initial thoughts. Obviously, an extenuating circumstance being COVID, mm -hmm. right? 1.0, which at some point, if we have time today, let's definitely cover mm. COVID 2.0. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's definitely a part of the stories of COVID where we saw a lot of that. And, you know, the first thought that comes to mind, frankly, is you uh, you probably should have diversified your client revenue streams, hmm. right? Um, we're always looking at businesses when we invest in businesses is like, do they serve one client or do they serve multiple clients in the event of some sort of shutdown, catastrophic situation, not just like COVID, but like if your main sale is a public entity, a government entity, like, yeah, then you are subject to regulatory risk. So just one quick on that, because we talked about, you know, work with people you like. Who do you like to work with? Who is beneficial to you? And I feel like that's what we did. We worked with a small <clears throat> eight, 10 people or 10 groups or 10 entities that were generating a lot of revenue for us Yeah, and that we enjoyed working with. But when that level of industry disappears, that's how we ended up the situation right. we were. So it's kind of a little bit of damn if you do, damn if you don't. Somewhat. Yeah, because of course, like if you are working inside of that one specific niche, like who you're intentional about who you serve, right? That's really good business, but you you may want to find other people too. Like you may want to find like, for example, I really, really love to work with the construction industry. Hmm. Love the construction industry. I don't particularly enjoy working in the medical industry, right? So I'm not going to work in the medical industry, but I want to work in the construction, but I can't just stay in construction. 
I've got to find tech. I've got to go find some, I've got to go find other industries that are not subject to so much regulatory or political, like one may be subject to political risk. The other one may be subject to inflation risk. The other one may be like, there's always some level of risk somewhere, but if one industry goes down, I still have other industries, mm. you know? So, and, and to be clear, I'm not saying only work with the people that you love to work with. I'm saying work with the right people. So let me give you an example. I have said no to working with businesses that are doing 50, 80, $100 million of revenue. And the reason I've said no is because I cannot serve them to the point that they require to be served. Mm. They would have been very profitable. I would have enjoyed it very much. It would have been a great pat on the back from like an ego perspective. But I knew the end result would have been me being fired because I could not deliver to their expectations. So it's not just the joy side. It's like, who is the person that you can serve the best given all of the skills and talents in your product, right? So I don't know much about your industry or your business, but I would imagine who, what other industries could you have served just as effectively and outside of the, what I would consider the, the, the government political markets? So that being said, I know that if we spent more time and devoted more energy, <coughs> devoted more energy into rebuilding our business, yeah, we could do it. Uh, we have a solid team. We have the discipline. We have the knowledge, industry knowledge, connections, etc. However, somehow we stumbled upon this opportunity where we actually enjoy much more what we do, which is this podcast and the content that we create around right. it. We are almost sacrificing growth and the ability to build back our business to do something else that may not be as lucrative, may not have a bigger financial goal, but we have our social goal. And trying to balance that too. It's, it, this is what's been driving me crazy because do I spend more time on the business and build it back, which I fully believe we could do, but then I can't do what I do now. It's very hard to split yourself amongst two extremely large projects. What do you recommend? As your therapist. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> As my therapist, financial advisor, so, and friend. So like I think we live in a world with two specific currencies, obviously. Money and time. And you get to choose to invest however you please, right? Both pieces of currency. And if you guys consume any of my content, you will see me talk about time management, time efficiency, productivity. Like I am obsessed with maximizing value, right? You, you heard me talk about the rally. Mm -hmm. I had 50 hours. Like what nerd knows how many hours you have to enjoy, <laughs> right? And then how do you maximize those 50 hours? Well, you just don't sleep. <laughs> um, my, my point is, is in your specific situation, your ROI is for you to decide which ROI do you want. Do you want the social ROI or the financial ROI? What I can tell you is that you can always go make more money. You are talented, disciplined, right? Like you've got all the right ingredients to go make a bunch of money, but you do not get your time back. And something I struggle with every day. I've got three beautiful kids, right? Three girls. And I just last night, as the nerd that I am, 
I was counting the amount of minutes that I have over the next two weeks hmm. and where I can like, where do I want to spend minutes? And I truly believe that if more people spent time figuring out their minutes and not their hours, we would get significantly more productivity out of life. If that is what you're searching. If you're searching for productivity in a social aspect, then this is where you invest it. If you are searching for productivity in a financial aspect, the other one is maybe where you invest it. But I perhaps would challenge you to figure out how to integrate the two. Yeah, I mean, if I could get paid to do what I love, amazing. Yeah, you can. <laughs> right? Getting paid to do what you love is, and trying to do it the right way is probably the longest road to success. It's also the rockiest. It's also one with the most detours to get there. It takes real commitment and serious sacrifice. And if I was 20 years old, like YOLO. Yeah. As you get older, you build a family. It's like, ah, oh, like I kind of want to, but I also need to consider others. I would say that, you know, there's probably a handful of people in your realm of network that are equally as talented as you are and as disciplined as you are and maybe don't have the industry knowledge that you have that you could lease their time for you to help achieve your goal. You know, I, I, I think through time in a little bit of a different scope than most people, but I think through my time in the form of minutes and I think through other people's times as a form of my minutes too. Because if I can hire somebody for 50 bucks an hour where I can go make hundred dollars an hour somewhere else, I'm creating leverage. So I would imagine if this is where you want to invest your time, you could integrate your life by spending 10 hours on the other side by educating someone else with 50 hours. Hmm. And now they could go run that company and use you as a strategic advisor. And they have a significant upside because you have the knowledge. They just need to go put in the hours and you can leverage your knowledge in exchange for their time for you to be able to do both. Hmm. All right. Quick pivot then, because you mentioned COVID 2.0. Yes. I've, we've seen the news articles, we've seen the headlines, new variants, new, et cetera, new PPE coming in. Um, you know, some areas of the country are talking about lockdown, etc. Number one, do you really feel like it's coming? I have no idea. Hmm. But I can tell you this much. If this is October of 2019 and I knew what was coming in March, I would have done things differently. Mm. I would have prepared differently. I would have had a different level of urgency in my life. Do you think, how important do you think it is? Because for a business owner to start prepping now with just a few headlines going out there, it can almost seem like jumping the gun a little bit. At the same time, the people who jumped the gun during COVID 2.1, 1.0, ended up doing pretty good. Pretty good. But is so, it, <laughs> so you know like, what I mean? So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but let's let's talk through the risk reward aspect of okay. this, right? Okay. Here's the message that we're sharing with our clients today. Mm -hmm. For you to prepare, whatever's coming down the road, I want you to follow three rules. Simple rules. One, I want you to look at your fixed operational expenses. I'm a nerd out here for a minute, okay? Not variable. I'm not talking about like how much you are eating out because you can shut that down in a matter of an hour. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the fixed operational expense. Let's just say you have a Lamborghini and your monthly payment's 3000 a month. And you're thinking about selling it. You don't really drive it a whole lot. It's a convertible. It's small, whatever it may be, right? 
Now is the time to sell that car and unload that fat, unload that 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 bloat off of your OPEX. Get your OPEX super thin. Get your OPEX thin where it can be without sacrificing quality. Okay, so if you can reduce it, awesome. If you do, you create more profit, which leads into rule number two, build liquidity. Now is not the time to deploy. Now is the time to keep. It's not the time to go buy real estate. It's not the time to invest. It's not the time to go deploy into buying your dream McLaren, right? Like now is not the time because what could be coming could destroy you if you are not liquid. So reduce operational expenses. This happens both at the business level and at the personal level, right? Build liquidity. Go get liquid. Go raise capital. Go build liquidity. And three, go get urgent, right? So like uh, if you have things on your to-do list on Thursday, bring them to Wednesday. Go get urgent about what you want to do and what you have to get done because if we shut down again, you won't be able to go do those things. If you have a prospect that you want to call, call them today. If you have a deal you got to close, go meet with them tomorrow because they may not want to close that deal if this happens, right? So you got to go get urgent about business. You've got to build up liquidity and you've got to reduce your operational expenses. And let's talk about the risk reward of that. Let's just say you do those three things and COVID 2.0 never shows up. Are you, are you worse off? Hmm. You're not worse off. You've just done great things to fix your balance sheet and build business, right? You probably scaled. Or let's just say COVID 2.0 does show up. Now, not only are you in a position to stay in business, but you're in a position to buy your competitor who probably didn't prepare. And you can go get market share at 10 cents on the dollar. You can go get talent at 10 cents on the dollar and grow your company at a pace on a discount than you could before. More importantly, you aren't stressed. You are prepared, right? Because so much wealth was created from April 2020 to December of 2020. And the people that created wealth in that environment, and listen, we're not talking about healthcare. We're not talking about those medical decisions. Like, yeah, it was awful. But like the people that created wealth, they created wealth because they had the opportunity to. And they had the opportunity to because they were prepared. So we're going down this path. Let's get prepared so we have the opportunity to go create wealth. That's it. How much sense of urgency do you personally feel people should have right now? A tremendous amount of urgency. Hmm. A tremendous amount of intentionality around your actions. So again, if it's October of 2019 and a new March of 2020 was coming, how would I have done things differently? Would I have expedited those business deals? Would I have called more people? Would I have, what would I have? I mean, obviously we were like in a, com- a funny story, not funny, but just life. Mm. We, we, we sold our business and we left in October of 2019 of our old broker dealer, mm-hmm. started this actual business in January of 2020 and COVID hits March of 2020. Timing's right. a bitch, huh? And I remember when when October left, I was like, cool, we've got a little bit of capital. We have about nine months runway um, because I refused to fire people. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not going to fire anybody uh, because there's mortgages, there's kids, there's, I mean, I, there's people re- relying. I'm like, all right, we got nine months worth of runway and then five months in COVID hits. And you're like, hmm, 
what do you do? And uh, I don't know what came over me at that moment in time, Matt, but w- what I did is I said, look, whatever we sell, we don't sell anymore. Hmm. We are here to make sure we do one thing and one thing only to keep the doors open for our clients. So we went and became experts at all things COVID, PPP, EIDL, ERTC. I mean, we became experts with those things and we served our clients there. We made exactly zero dollars in all those things. But what it created is tremendous amount of brand equity and loyalty. And it led, it was like the beginning of the path on serving clients well. Because nobody was serving people then, right? Mm. Nobody, in my opinion, was the banks, the CPAs, those financial advisors. They were not like, let me go teach you this. No, they were like, I got to figure out a way to sell my product so I stay alive. Everyone was in survival and self-survival mode. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we have the best year we've ever had within six months. Obviously, things turned around July of 2020 through December of 2020. We did more business than we had ever done, Mm. ever in 10 years of business. And since then, we've grown 100% year over year. What do I attribute that to? I attribute that to serving our clients right. I attribute that to the client experience. How many businesses do you have kind of under your umbrella or as clients? Just so I can get a gauge of where we're at. Um, so we um, I, we have about 480 clients Whoa. Um, in the business. I serve about 50. Mm. And then we have you, you personally, me do. personally. Like yeah. In an entire organization, about give or take 500. A give or take, yeah, four to 500, somewhere there. Mm. Um, not all of them are active clients. Some of our are all more of our passive platforms. Mm. Um, we have our, our conglomerate of businesses is a, is a wealth management and an insurance arm. We have a, a benefits arm. We have a payroll HR arm. And then we have the consulting arm that we have in house. And then we have strategic partnerships with different tax services and things of that nature, because there are some wonderful CPAs out there that do a really, really good job. So any chance that I get, I plug them in because they really deliver for their clients. So you have pretty practical knowledge of the economy because you have businesses that you serve and work with, and you have an idea of what they're generating, where they're going, uh, profit, et cetera. Then very blanket question, how is the economy? I think it's struggling. Hmm. We work with what we consider a lot of leading indicator industries, mm-hmm. shipping, manufacturing, things like that. <clears throat> uh, and they're having the worst years ever. And I think it's a function of the blowback of just some of the decisions we've made. You know, um, when you pump in $3.4 trillion into the, I think it was $3.4 trillion into the economy, it takes some time for it to trickle down into what I can call the consumer level, right? The institutional recession has happened where institutions had to pull back, had to make different decisions. And now we are starting to face it at the consumer retail level. And I think it's it's not pretty. I think it looks pretty from the outside, right? It's like polishing a turd right now. Um, but I, I think it's still in a, in a rough spot and it's going to continue to be in a rough spot. We have an election year next year. We've got potentially COVID 2.0. And what I like to call the big machine, right, is starting to turn and feed things that will leave room and opportunity for legislation to pass for us to be able to try and make some moves. So who knows what it's going to happen? And I don't have a way to predict it. But what I do know is there are leading industries that historically, when they suffer 
what comes after isn't great. And this isn't a fear tactic, it's a preparation tactic. Mm. Because in recessions, there's not less money in the economy. It just hides. It doesn't get used. And it generally flows up to the upper echelon and it stays there until it's time for it to flow back down, waiting for opportunities. And you can be that person if you prepare accordingly with your financials, right? And it doesn't matter, you know, some people have more zeros than others, but you can still prepare. And even if you are in the middle class, you know, upper middle class, lower upper class, wherever you are, you can make financial decisions in your life that will put you in a better position in the event of an actual systemic recession. Because I'm not a huge um, data guy. I'm not an economist. I don't really understand business that much other than what I do. But I can feel it. I can feel it in the vibe of people. I can feel it in the conversations I have. I can feel it in the messages that I get from just normal Americans out there that people are, number one, struggling, and number two, concerned. And COVID, COVID 1.0, people were, the economy was great leading into it. So we were able to handle it. And although some people got crushed, my business got crushed, I was able to come out alive because the economy was so great leading up to it. If the economy is not as strong as we're told, which I feel, because again, I can feel it in the air. And that's the most subjective way, whatever. Yeah, but it's true. Mm -hmm. I feel it with all of my clients. I mean, it's just the vibe. You can yeah. feel it. People don't want to spend They're when they could. Scared. And people are even going to McDonald's like, I'm not going to supersize. On the littlest, smallest, craziest decisions, like, I'm going to save my 49 cents. It's such a crazy thing to save on. But people do it now. Six months ago, right, um, I had to raise my prices in our, in our firm so significantly because I couldn't get people to say no. Mm. 12 months ago, right? They were just engaging, engaging, without even question. As a matter of fact, I had clients engage us and never call us back. Like they would be, they would start paying our monthly engagement fee, and then they wouldn't call me back. And I'm like, why? Why are you paying me? <laughs> I need you to call me so I can do this for you, right? Like that's how silly it was. Today, that's not the case, mm. right? Like someone thinks two or three times. It requires a little bit more massaging. It requires a little bit more phone calls for them to actually truly engage us. Mm -hmm. That's how I know there's so much more thoughtfulness before spending. So my biggest concern is if the economy was good before COVID 1.0 and a lot of people survived and that's the word. They just, a lot of people survived. Some people made wealth. Some people survived. If the economy is not good now and we go into a COVID 2.0, I feel like it's going to crush a significant amount of more people. If it plays the same. Mm. I, I don't, I don't know how it's going to, I mean, let's just assume a COVID 2.0 plays out. Mm. I don't think we have the same response as a country, in hmm. my opinion. I think there's a significant amount of the population that's like, nah, I'm not shutting my business down. Mm -hmm. You've burned me down once. I'm not going to let you burn me down again. And I think there's parts of the country that are absolutely, you know, they're going to follow suit and there's parts that are not. And I'm, I'm less worried about the economy and more worried about just like the overall infrastructure of the system mm. in the event that happens again, because I think there is a significantly higher chance of more violence, which sucks, mm. you know? I mean, we're in a place where there's an uneasy feeling about people's money, which is kind of where it hits closest to. 
people are getting nervous about family values and the push of certain types of rhetoric, and that adds another layer of uneasiness. And then you add in kind of, hey, um, there's a new virus in town, so you have to comply. And you add that, I'm worried that that's going to be too much. And then it'll, what happens? It'll tip it over. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? It, it is. And Which is why I have a safe room <laughs> <laughs> built into my house. <laughs> do you? I do. Yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't need more details on that. We don't need to let everybody know. <laughs> um, no, like I, you know, I think through like as a father and a husband, I think through like how do I make sure my family's fully protected? And I've made pivots in my life to make sure that we have all the preparations necessary to be able to survive. It's super silly to think about, but it's like also something to think about. I agree with you. I think it's a lot of pressure. I, I, but at the same time, I will say this. We do have a few levers to pull from an economic perspective that could turn on the wealth creation spigot in the economy pretty quick, which I believe like if you, if you were to, if, if it's 2025 today and we were to look back and go, okay, that's how it all played out. I think we have enough in there to be able to not let it impact people too badly. Per usual, middle class is going to be the one that suffers the most. Always. You know, because I came from that world. I grew up incredibly poor. And, you know, I'm an immigrant. And my parents gave up absolutely everything for me to have an opportunity of the American dream. So I'm incredibly proud of this country. I'm incredibly pl- proud of being an American. And that middle class, that working class, they're the ones that don't have enough margin and they're the ones that are going to suffer the most, right? Because let's just say COVID 2.0 happens, the economy starts to tank. The first thing they're going to do is lower interest rates. And the minute they lower interest rates down 2%, the real estate market blows up. Hmm. And it's all over, it's it's gangbusters all over again. You know, it's 2015, it's 2004. It, it's going to turn on and it's going to swing that pendulum so fast that we'll be okay, but the working class won't, right? Because eggs will still be $8 and milk will still be $10. Like it'll take a long time for that trickle-down effect to come back, if it ever does. Because inflation generally doesn't bring prices back down, mm-hmm. right? Never like, see, never you, see it go down. You never see it go down. No. So like- but the wage gap is going to be pretty significant because income isn't going to go up as fast, mm-hmm. right? So that's who suffers. Hmm. So you work with a lot of business owners and with the uneasiness of the economy, with the uneasiness of kind of the social economics of the world and especially the country, people start considering Fringe financial opportunities like crypto. Are you a big crypto guy? Where, where do you stand on crypto? I don't stand anywhere with crypto. Mm-hmm. I have it. Mm-hmm. I uh, I buy it every month because I don't I don't think it's going to disappear. But I also don't. I'm not educated enough on it to be like an all in type of a guy. Yeah. Um, is your purchase of it monthly? Is it you know just in case, or is it uh I, I see the value in it, so I'm willingly doing it. Or is it reluctantly doing it? I see you know the value mean? in it, and I'm willingly do it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's a large amount of my net worth. I wouldn't say it's a, um, the, an amount that I can forget about. Although, 
fun fact, I did buy some Dogecoin <laughs> and I totally forgot about it. Uh-huh. And like $1,400 turned into like $86,000. And I'm like, holy crap. And then when I logged in, I was like, this is awesome. And I sold it and got out of it. Get, get out of there quick, right? <laughs> um, anyways, but it's not something that I'm going to forget about, but it's not something that I'm paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Because I, I generally like to invest in things that I can control mm-hmm. and things that I have impact in. You know, I, I, I dollar cost average into the crypto market. I dollar cost average into the stock market. But most of my investments in my net worth are in the venture capital space mm. where I will go in, buy pieces of real estate, add value, create cash flow or transact or same thing with business or I'll hire people into my team. Like right now we're looking at buying another piece of the financial services firm to be able to add one more revenue stream to our business, you know, cause we're aiming at seven revenue streams. Once we have seven revenue streams, we will then have enterprise value. So that's where I invest most of my money in, which for most people, they would think like Claudio, you're crazy. And most of the time I feel incredibly poor because my cash flow and my liquidity is never high. Mm. Like I never, I'm never sitting on cash except for right now, right? Like that messaging mm-hmm. is something that I am preparing for myself because I think I will be able to go out and buy other firms at a discount. So say I have, I don't half a million bucks in equity on real estate and maybe stocks and I don't know, maybe some cash in preparation of potentially what may happen, what would you do with that? I think that's where maybe a lot of middle Americans sit, right around that number, right? In a mixture of kind of what they need. So let's just assume they're entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's where the the space I play in. Mm. Most of your equity in your stock, what I would do is I would de-risk it. And I'm not giving you financial advice. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying like, this is what I would do. Mm -hmm. I would de-risk it, Mm -hmm. right? I would not continue to add risk to that side of that portfolio. So that if you have a more stable position there, you have the ability to go access the capital no matter what happens in the stock market. Your risk there is your opportunity cost, right? Like you could say, let's just say you have a half a million dollars in the S&P 500 and you de-risk it and you move it to treasury bills, municipal bonds, corporate bill, you know, corporate bonds, things of that nature, and we're wrong, you go from potentially making 15, 20% to making five. Mm. That's a risk, yeah, right? But that's for you to discuss with your financial advisor. And on real estate, I would be really careful in the real estate, the type of real estate. If it's commercial and you have debt on it, make sure it's not adjustable debt. Just you got to find out what's going on there because there's probably some some issues potentially happening. And then anywhere else you have access to capital, make sure you have locked in access. So like, let's say you equity in real estate, go get a HELOC, go get a, a line of credit on that real estate. Don't use it. It's probably expensive debt, so don't use it, but make sure it's available, which means you may have to deploy some of it so it doesn't get called. So you've got liquidity and you've got access to liquidity, and you want to make sure that liquidity is stable. That's what I would do. Like Personally, that's what I'm doing. We have a large portfolio of commercial real estate that's on fixed debt. We're bringing in equity, having that open, most of my liquid position is either in cash or cash equivalents. And then we have um, a large chunk of, of liquidity inside of insurance products that have fixed rates. So we don't have to worry about risk there. And we have liquidity there. 
So that's where most of the portfolio sits. Where do you stand on um, ideas of kind of putting your assets into a trust structure? Yeah. That's something that I hear a lot these days. People are getting more open to it. I feel like that's an idea that was really reserved for a select few. But now that idea of building trust and family trust, especially, seems to be growing. It depends on what your goal is, right? If your goal is succession planning, it's one level of trust planning. If your goal is like, hey, if I die, here's what happens, it's one type of planning. And if your goal is asset protection, it's a totally different type of planning. It's oversold, Matt. Mm. You know, there's a lot of people on, on social media selling these miraculous trust structures that avoid taxes and this and that. And most of it's wrong. Mm. 99% of it's wrong. Because at the end of the day, um, trusts and the entities of trusts serve a job, right? And most of the time that job is to either help you move assets from your generation to the next or help you move assets out of your estate. The whole purpose of a trust is to protect things, not to avoid taxes. And where too many people get into trouble is they sell these ideas, but it's not going to work because it doesn't follow the tax code. Um, my opinion is this. Identify the goal, right? Let's just say you say, Claudio, uh, I'm building a high-risk business. I'm worried about being sued. What do I do? The first thing we're going to look at is like, how do you own your assets? Where do you own them? Do you own them personally? Do you own them through an organizational structure? Do you own them through trust? Claudio, I own them personally. Okay. Let's figure out what the actual risk here is. Is the risk here lawsuit because of civil situations, bankruptcy, like I'm taking a ton of risks, I may go bankrupt kind of thing, right? Like, let's create an organizational structure that separates you from your assets. Let's create a holding company that then owns... 100% of the shares of these companies, right? And then you and a trust of some sort would own the shares of this holding company. Let's make sure the holding company is done in a way that is anonymous, right? Let's run it through Delaware, Wyoming, Nevada, so that no one can find out who actually owns this. So they can't ever tie you to these companies. That's going to create a lot of protection. Let's make sure you have the right insurances in place general liability, workman's comp, umbrella, auto, home, right? Like, let's make sure all that's really good. Between org structure and insurances, you're pretty much bulletproof. Because, mm. you know, because of what I do and sometimes some of the content that we create and sometimes some it's, of the things that I say... It's never controversial. I, I feel like I am becoming a high-risk individual for... I don't know. I'm putting myself out there and it's getting a little on the risky side. And which is crazy because people say, Matt, be careful, be careful. And I'm like, what kind of world do we live in that for saying what I think, I have to be careful. Besides that, I want to protect myself because that's not me I want to protect. I want to protect my family. Yeah. Do you think for someone like me who is not overly wealthy, but at the same time, just by the nature of what I do, carry inherent risk. What yeah, do you, think you, you, do? you need an org structure so that you separate you from the assets. Mm. And then you would also look at a trust structure. That way, if something does happen, it all passes in accordance to what you would wish. Mm. Right? I'll share with you kind of a little bit about my stuff. 
I have a hold company, a holding company. I have two holding companies. I have one holding company that's just me and my wife, and then I have another holding company that's me and my business partners. And these two hold co's then own, you know, all the other assets underneath. We've got businesses, we've got real estate, we've got uh, toys, right, on the personal side. And then on the business side, we have an investment company, we have more real estate, and we have different uh, portfolio companies. That's the org structure, right? Um, without getting into too much detail because mm -hmm. of, of course, the internet. Um, <laughs> and then I also have a trust structure, which is an AB type of trust. <clears throat> we have an irrevocable trust, and then we also have a marital and a survivorship trust. The marital survivorship trust, you know, are like if, some, if something happens to me, the money gets spent sent to my wife and my kids. And a majority of the money actually gets sent to my kids. Mm. Because let's just say, actually, let's, let's flip this around. Something happens to my wife because this is the most likely scenario is she doesn't make it home. That's not the most likely scenario. Like the next part, the next part is the most likely yeah. scenario. I end up marrying mm. a crazy person, mm. right? And probably someone I fell in love at a nightclub mm. bottle service. Looking kind of good. <laughs> <laughs> um, my point is, is let's just say I marry a crazy person. I get divorced. Mm. I don't want my wealth to then be split through the divorce. So like if something happens to my wife, most of the money goes to a trust for my kids. Mm. That way that trust is not subject to the divorce. Interesting. So that's how we set that up. If something happens to both me and my wife at the same time, it goes into this irrevocable trust where I have uh, people that I trust that make healthcare choices on my kid's behalf, people that I trust that make financial decisions on my kid's behalf, and then people that I trust to actually take care of the kids. And I've separated those three because I think there are superpowers. Like I've got people that are really great at money that are not great at healthcare choices. I've got people that are really great at healthcare choices that are really good at money. Like I wanted to separate this because like the people that I trust on healthcare are people in my community that I love, right? And then I've got like professionals, financial advisors, and like wealth management people managing the money. And then I want my kids to stay in the family, so my sister is going to be the guardian. Right, so it's set up in a way that the kids would be raised almost as if we were there. So I get it. It's also extremely complex. If I'm if I'm off the street and I have a little bit of money and I'm like, I want to do this, and then you explain that to me, I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna keep where I'm going. You need to. It's you, a lot going. You on. need three documents. Yeah, basic three documents: a living will, mm. a health surrogacy form, and a power of attorney. Those are the the, the basic three. At the very, very least. And then, is that something that you do? It's something that we can facilitate in, yeah. Mm. Yeah, you need an attorney to do it. A of, state, of course. A state it, specific, yeah. yeah, and we're not attorneys. Mm. Um, but, man, we're getting into that, like, side where, like, if I'm in a high-risk position like you, mm. it's less about, like, if something happens to you. Like, if something happens to you, make sure the money goes to the right place and the kids go to the right place. Chances are it's just you, not you and your wife, right? Like, so mm. you're probably fine there, but... Just make sure the money goes to the right place. If you've got wealth and some life insurance, make sure the kids, the wife gets the right number. It, it, I'm a nerd. I do this for a living. Of course, my, my shit's complicated. Because <laughs> you enjoy it. Because <laughs> I live for this. <laughs> I, have, I have a friend, actually, side note. I have a friend who on a Friday night redoes his budget every Friday night because he enjoys it. <laughs> He'll just go through and be like, hey, I could tweak this here and I could spend like a dollar less here, two dollars here. This is just what he loves to do. And I'm watching like, Eric, I'm like, bro, you are the biggest nerd I know. This is so boring. <laughs> but I never have to worry about him being broke. Well, hold on. 
let's talk about that. <laughs> because I had a conversation with my wife about this. Uh-huh. I don't know, a week ago. And she's like, why are you always on my case about Target? Uh-huh. And I'm like, because Target is our biggest expense line item. <laughs> you know, like, and we have a lot of cars. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you're more, and that's cheaper than Target. Um, but all kidding aside, like, I I don't ever want to live like that uh-huh. because I don't keep a budget. Yeah, I I legitimately do not keep a budget. Huh. I have a savings plan, and as long as I hit those savings targets, I'm gonna go spend the rest. Mm. Because like, what is the point of saving all this money and not living your life? Mm. Like I said, I am furiously chasing memories. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be irresponsible with wealth. I could certainly have a lot more wealth right now if I was like hell bent on saving money, but I don't care about that. I want to go make memories with my friends. I want to go hang out with my family. I could go build this business to be 10 times the size of what it is today, but like I'm making a choice to to spend my currency of time on my family. Like this summer I think I worked 3 weeks. Hmm. And because of it the business suffered. Mm-hmm. Like we did not make profit this summer. But that's because I chose to be with my family. So, like from a wealth perspective, we could be a lot wealthier. But I, I want to live. I don't want to just have. Because mm. in all reality, let's think about this. Let's just say you accumulate twenty million dollars, right? And you neglect your wife and kids and friends to go get it, right? And you wake up one day, and your kid is sick. And the surgery costs twenty million dollars. You would give up everything to make sure your kid's healthy, mm. right? And so, if you're willing to give up everything, why are you sacrificing it to get it to begin with? Mm. So, I think about that on a very regular basis, and I also think about what Alex Hormozzi says all the time: when you're 85 years old, you would probably give up everything you have to go back and be 37 again. Mm. So why are you sacrificing it now? There's like a fine line between working your ass off, especially when you're young, to having some sort of balance as you get older, especially after you start having a family. At what point do you think you need to go from a million miles an hour to, hey, maybe it's time to slow down and maybe you do need to add value to other people in your life? Where do you think that balance is or when is it? I, I don't know. And so, I, man, I feel like I'm deficient in that all the time. Like, mm. I don't feel like I'm being the best friend that I can be, the best son, the best father, the best husband, the best business owner. And I try to integrate, like we talked about, where I can. Um, but I think there are very clear stages in life, right? Before you have familial responsibilities, go kill it, go crush it. And, at, you know, go crush it before you have those so that you don't have to when you do have there's a book, Die With Zero by mm. Bill Perkins. I'm not sure if you've ever read it. Um, but the whole premise of the book is actually like not to just go spend all of your money and die with zero. So it's a little bit misleading. But the premise of the book is spend money in stages of your life that are appropriate. And he talks about an example of a kid who's 22 years old saving and scrimping every penny they have, right? Right. And he talks about how inappropriate that likely is because when you're only making $35,000 a year, it's really hard to save 1000 right? 
So when you're making $35,000 a year, just enjoy your life a little bit. Don't don't be so strict because eventually you're going to go make, hopefully, $200,000 a year and you'll be able to save a lot more, mm. right? So um, it's all about like using money and spending money in different stages of life that are appropriate and investing money and time in stages of life that are appropriate. Because I look at this bell curve for me and you. We both have kids probably the same age. Before kids, we had all the time in the world to go absolutely crush and build and race cars down the state of Florida mm. and get in accidents and get pulled over by the cops and throw dildos, right? Um, <laughs> Living our best life. <laughs> yeah, YOLO. We're like, one of my friends said the other night, uh, it's incredibly problematic that we only have one life to live, mm. right? Um, so there's that. And then we go through the stage of life where we have kids and we have to invest in them and we have to raise them so they're not, you know, non-contributing zeros and and then they leave mm. and you're stuck with all that time again so i am building my life to that bell curve mm. i built a shit ton before kids now with kids i'm gonna go spend a shit ton and then when they're gone i'm gonna go probably make it again mm. that's how i plan to build my life hmm. interesting and then i'm gonna give it all away and let my kids figure it out for themselves let them figure it out <laughs> Okay, then uh, I guess a final scenario, because I feel like this is something that a lot of people can relate to, not necessarily your um, your area of business. However, I think you can provide good context. If I am 20, 30, 40 years old, have a family already, I work a job. I'm stuck in that cylindrical rat race. Yes. I hate it. Most people in that corporate life, most people in that grind hate what they do. I know it. I want to get out of it. I want to feel like I can do better. I can do more, but I have a family. How do I get out of the rat race knowing that I have other responsibilities also? I'm willing to do the work. I just don't know where to start. Man, that's a, a beautiful question. In today's space, the ability of leverage is so tremendous with technology, AI, social media. You have access to data, people, information at such a rapid pace. And I talk like I'm 80 years old, right? But I remember when I first started this business, I didn't have email on my phone, <laughs> right? Like that's wild. And I didn't, I didn't have texting. Yeah, 25 cents per you know what i'm saying like um but like today i can literally build an ebook in a matter of 20 minutes using chat gpt mm. right so i think the first step here is being incredibly intentional about your time you got to find your minutes if you can find 30 minutes on your bookends 30 minutes at the beginning 30 minutes at the end that's an hour an hour a day right 30 hours a month that's an extra whole week's worth of work generally, right? You can do an extra whole week worth of work by adding, by capturing your minutes. And in that, you've got to identify a couple of things. Whatever your work is, you have a superpower. You have a genius. You are a genius of something. I don't care what you are doing. You are a genius of something. And you can serve somebody with that genius. So my first step in that environment would be, whatever that genius is, figure out who needs that genius. Create a product leveraging technology in that genius. 
right? So maybe it's education, maybe it's consulting, maybe it's training, right? You don't have to go create it. Like, like you don't have to go buy an LED and then mark it up and sell the LED. You know what I'm saying? Like mm. you don't you don't have to invest that kind of capital and inventory in today's space. You can become an educator and sell that education on a scalable platform without a ton of effort. And depending on your W-2 world, you may not need to serve that many people to replace your world. Hmm. So that's where I would start, is figure out your area of genius. Like I've got a really good friend who works for a big company and his whole job is to negotiate government contracts in the firearm arena, hmm. right? His area of genius is understanding how to deal with India and France and London in government contracts. And I said, dude, if you could build a seminar or if you could build a product around how to negotiate those contracts with those countries, you don't think there's somebody that's selling something to London mm -hmm. that would love to have you as their consultant mm -hmm. for, I don't know, a thousand bucks a month, right? And based upon how much I know you make, you only need 15 of those, 20 of those. There's probably 500 of those, and I guarantee you 30 would hire you. Mm -hmm. And it would not take a ton of time. You are flying to India once a month, which means you're on the plane for 20 hours every month on someone else's dime. You could build it in that. Hmm. So that's where I would start. Well, I think that's a good way to end. Claudio, appreciate you coming on the pod. Yeah, man. We're going to link all of his socials on the bottom here, so you can definitely check him out. He puts up content regularly, and it is amazing. It is super super valuable to me in my life, and I consume a lot of it. So I appreciate what you do, what you Thank put you. out there. I love your message. I love your tone. I love how you present the material. Um, also, for the rest of you guys at home listening, go be geniuses. Go find your hour a day. It's not that hard to do. You just got to be a little bit more intentional. Yes, sir. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate yeah, you. Of course. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Awesome. Bro, you're good. You're so smart, man. I wish I was smart like you. You know what I'm saying? Like, fuck. I wish I was smart like that. Not that smart. <laughs>